Father, thank you that you are perfect in all of your ways. That when we understand it and even when we don't, that we can fully trust that, that you are working in ways that, that glorify yourself and that are ultimately for our good. I just thank you. Thank you for everything that you are. Father, thank you for just the opportunity to gather as your church, that your church that you are building, that you are sanctifying, that you are choosing to work through. And I just pray this time would be just a time where we're able to glorify you together, that when we're able to worship you, we're able to praise you, And that is totally outside of what we deserve. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that, that you so perfectly worked in ways that we never could. I just pray that you would just speak this morning and just change our hearts to want you more and more and more and worship you completely. Father, this time is for you. I just pray that you would just open your word to us and just continue to shape us and make us more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and open up to Matthew 21. Starting a brand new chapter. So at this point, Going through Matthew, we've gone through 20 chapters um, over the last year and five months-ish. And it's basically comprised of three years of Jesus' life. Uh, we've seen him kind of from birth to, um, but especially when he started his ministry, we've seen how he's, how he's been teaching about what it looks like to follow him, what it looks like to be a true follower of Jesus. And it's, taught, it's come with a lot of rebuke from the, to the people, a lot of correction of his disciples, and he's continually taught what it means to, to follow him. And today we're starting Matthew 21. It's often called the triumphal entry as, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And I said the first 20 chapters is more or less over a three-year span, but these next eight chapters are all within about a week, all right, right, right out a week. And this is usually what's preached the weekend before Easter. Um, and that's obviously not where we're at time frame. But that's kind of the general, we're on the weekend before Easter. So let's, I'm going to go ahead and read Matthew 21, um, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, the, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey." On a colt, the foul of a beast of burden. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This passage is probably one of the most dramatized passages in Scripture. We, like, if you've been in church for any length of time at all, you've seen the kids' ministry, you've seen people act out this scene, right, of Jesus coming in riding a donkey with palm branches, people throwing their coats on the ground. And I feel like we, we have a mental picture of this. I don't know if it's, if it's right or, or what, but we have this image of what it was for Jesus walking in almost parade style into Jerusalem. And I don't necessarily want to talk a lot this morning on what happened, on, on the details, because we just read what happened. We saw exactly what happened. But I hope, I hope we can ask more the question of why. What is the significance of this? Not getting caught up in the small details that we could talk, we could go through this over three or four weeks if we wanted to. But I want to look at why. What is the significance of this? Honestly, I did get caught up in, in looking at details this week as I, was kind of, as I was studying this passage. And it's often, it's, like I said, it's preached usually the weekend before Easter, the Sunday before Easter. But looking at the time frame of this, looking at the other Gospels and kind of walking through what is often called Holy Week, this week before Easter, it seems that this most likely took place on Monday um, instead of actual Sunday before um, Go look at that this week. Oh, we can talk about that next week if you want to. Um, but it seems just the way the week plays out that this is probably on Monday. Um, but we're talking the week right before Good Friday. I mean, Jesus dies on Friday. We're talking Sunday. I think it's more Monday. We're talking just a couple days, five days before Jesus was crucified. And we talked last week about how the disciples... Jesus, the disciples, and those, the larger crowds that are following him are approaching Jerusalem. They're on their way to Jerusalem. And from what, I've, from what I found, Bethpage is a tiny village that's just under a mile from the gates of Jerusalem. Um, we see this, this, this seems to be where Jesus stayed at during his week in Jerusalem. Um, during the, over the next three or four chapters, we're going to see him go back and forth quite a few times between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives and back and forth. Um, but it makes it, it's likely that this is where he was actually staying. And we see that he sends his disciples, he sends two disciples in to um, get this donkey. But I want to make sure we see the significance of this prophecy um, that's given from Zechariah. Because in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15 specifically, Paul says that everything that's going on, everything from Jesus' birth, to, to entering into Jerusalem, to his death, his resurrection, that all of this is according to the scriptures. Uh, it's in, it's in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. I don't have it up on the screen. But he says that it's all according to the scriptures. It's all according to the Old Testament. All this has been prophesied about. That Jesus is coming fulfilling all of these things that have already been said. Because that's what the whole Old Testament is pointing towards. That's why I said a couple weeks ago that I love the Jesus Storybook Bible. Because every single story ends with 
and, the, and promising this coming rescuer, that Jesus was going to send, Je- that God was sending Jesus to be the rescuer, to save his people. I've heard through um, different pastors, different preachers, different numbers thrown about exactly how many prophecies Jesus fulfilled. And usually the number is approximately 350 prophecies that Jesus, in his coming, in his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, that he fulfilled 300 prof- 350-ish prophecies. Um, I've heard different pastors throw out numbers on the, the odds of Jesus fulfilling all of these um, prophecies. And it's like, you get to where it's like 10 to the 150th power and all sorts of numbers that I'm not even going to try to say. But like all I have to be saying like, is Jesus is specifically fulfilling these prophecies. It's not by accident, but that he is showing himself to be the one that's been promised, the Messiah that's been promised all throughout the Old Testament. That he is the Messiah that was promised that it would come and save his people. And here in, here in Matthew 21, we see one of these prophecies. It's from Zechariah 9.9, um, which from the time frame that I saw, it was approximately 500 years before the birth of Jesus. It's actually one of the more recent um, of the prophecies. Let's go ahead and read. It's in uh, verse 4 and 5, I believe. Um, but this is the prophecy. It says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. Is it fowl or foal? Foal? Okay. I thought about that all week, and I was like, I'm going to look this up, I'm going to look this up, and I, I never did. Um, so thanks. But like, this isn't just some obscure statement. It's not some random thing that's just thrown in there for fun. Like, this is a, a prophecy that Jesus specifically fulfilled that was very clear on the way that Jesus was going to enter, the kind of kingdom, the kind of servant we kind of talked about last week, the way that he entered into Jerusalem. But it says that he was going to enter in on a donkey, on a colt. And this is very important because this is not the way that kings would have entered a city. The donkeys were kind of the ugly donkeys that were not that were not used to show power, were not used to show glory, were not used to show strength. Because if a king or a prince would want to enter in showing strength, showing his power, showing his might, it would usually be on that big white stallion or uh, from things I read, sometimes it was also on even larger animals with, with showed even more strength, such as like an elephant. Um, tell, tell me someone else, that Prince Ali. Is that what you're saying? The real Disney age of real good Disney movies and Aladdin. But, but seriously, like Aladdin, Prince Ali comes in riding this elephant that's really a monkey, but it's an elephant. And he comes in showing his power, showing his strength, because he's going to woo this princess. At one point... There's like, there's a parade. I was going to show this scene, but there's no real way to do it without a five-minute clip, and that just got a little excessive. But there's one part of that where Prince Ali is holding up like 15 guys on himself, showing his strength, trying to impress, trying to be this strong leader ruler. Because that's pretty much the way of the worldly leaders, that they try to display power, display their strength. But this was not at all the method, the attitude, the manner in which Jesus was entering into Jerusalem. There was, there was a lot of fanfare. There was this whole procession going on. There was people following him. It says there was people in front of him. People had come out of the city to meet him. There was a lot going on. But it wasn't him coming in displaying his earthly kingdom. Because he wasn't coming in to be this 
conquering king, at least not this time. He wasn't coming in to overthrow the Romans. He wasn't coming in to to be this, this earthly leader. But that he knew that his victory was really going to be him being nailed to a cross. That his victory was going to be his conquering death, his overcoming sin and death. The people don't realize this. Most of the people following him, we're going to quickly see their response to him is going to change drastically over five days. Because that wasn't what they were expecting. That wasn't what they were wanting. That wasn't the kind of salvation that they thought they needed. That this Jesus coming on a donkey, they had such various, such incorrect expectations of why he was coming to them, why he was entering into the city. Incorrect expectations of the Messiah. Let's read Matthew 21, 8 through 9 again. Um, This is just, I want to look at the response of these people. Response of the crowds. Verse 8 says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Like, they're worshiping. They're declaring who he is. They're Something that I think I often miss when reading this is they're basically saying, you are the Messiah, you're the son of David, you're the one that's been promised is coming. Like they're saying the right things, but it's their expectations of what that Messiah was coming to save them from where they were confused, where they were incorrect. Because they were saying, we've been ruled by the Romans, we're coming, we want that liberation, that's what we really need. But for a moment, it seems that they're treating him as the son of God. They're treating him, they're worshiping him in a way that he deserves. From what I've learned, during the Passover time, which is this time, is when there would have been this heightened expectation of, for the Messiah to come. As they're, as they're celebrating Passover, as they're looking back to their deliverance from Egypt and the deliverance from that, that slavery, that every year when they would celebrate, there'd be this heightened expectation for the Messiah. And then Jesus comes in and there's this rejoicing. The crowds are excited because they know their liberation is coming because the Messiah is here. Because they have a specific expectation of what the Messiah is going to bring them. They have a specific expectation of what he's going to do for them, how he's going to improve their situation. What we're going to see is that their expectations of salvation are very, very different. That they, they wanted this Roman, this liberation from the Romans. They wanted this um, physical saving of their situation. They were okay with their religion. They were okay with what the Pharisees had to do with all these laws and this calloused religion that says, if I do this, I can offer this sacrifice. They were okay with that. But what they wanted saving from was their, again, their physical situation, their oppression by the Romans. And here's a statement that I think absolutely applies to them, and I think it very well apply to us, is that we often are very okay, even long for a ruler, a leader, a savior, who we approve of, who we think is out for our best interests, is going to do the things that make us happy, is going to do the things that 
we're expecting them to do, to lead us well, to save us from whatever we need saving from. And like, what they're expecting is they welcome Jesus with this glory and glamour as he's coming into the city because they have, like I keep saying, expectations for him. And I think that we often have expectations of what Jesus is going to do for us, what, how he's going to help us, what it is that he's doing for us. And so the, there's one question I'm going to ask a bunch of times today. I'm just going to kind of repeat this one question. Why do you worship? Why do we worship? Why do we sing songs? Why do we come to church? Why do we worship? Why do you worship? Because that's something I think we're going to come back to over and over and over. Because these people, they're worshiping to an extent. They're, they're declaring the greatness of Jesus, that he's the son of, God, the son of David. That he, they're saying, Hosanna. They're, they're, they're giving him praise. But those same people are going to be screaming, crucify him, crucify him in five days. Because after this, we're going to see in the next, in the upcoming chapters, that Jesus is going to get back into his last teaching section. And it's not, the things that he's going to get into in the next couple chapters is, are not super big, exciting things for those that he's calling out. It's going to become very obvious that he's not the Messiah that they wanted or they expected. That all of a sudden it's like, wait, the things you're saying, that's not the liberation we wanted. That's not what we were expecting you to do. That's not the saving that we wanted. And it goes from Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David to crucify him, crucify him. And as soon as he didn't meet their expectations, they wanted nothing to do with him. They wanted him gone. So again, like why are you worshiping Jesus? Why are you claiming to be a follower of Jesus? Like We can sing Hosanna to the highest. We can sing Rejoice. We can sing You're a Good, Good Father and have the wrong expectations and, have, and want the wrong things and be selfishly motivated in why we want Jesus. And like, that's one of the scariest verses in the Bible that says there's many people who are going to come and say, look at all these things I did for you, Jesus. And he's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. So like, we, can, we can do the right things, say the right words, and have our heart that is not truly understanding the gospel. We've often joked about this whole pray for a pool God's going to give you a pool, that thing that we've, we've joked about that all the time, and how, how bad, how, how false of a teaching that is, that if you just have enough faith that God's going to give you whatever you ask for, and like that's not at all what we believe to be true. But what if we take it a step further? What if things start looking, there's no pool involved, but things are really, really bad? Like this is, these kind of what if questions are really, really hard to ask and really hard to comprehend and think about. What I want to do is ask, like, are we still willing to worship if part of God's will, if part of the path that you're on includes cancer? Or what if it includes bankruptcy, loss of a job, financial ruin, loss of your family, loss of your house, loss of your health? 
Like, are we still willing to worship? Is, or is it based on our personal circumstances or our current circumstances or the current good things that we see? Like, they're hard questions that I hope that we don't have to ask, that we don't have to endure that, but I would say that we very well could, and I'd say that some of us very well have. But why do you worship? It's not, not how do you worship, not where do you worship, but why? Do you worship Jesus as Lord because you think that he's going to meet your expectations of giving you a good life, giving you what you want, making things easy? Like, go through, if you read through the book of Job sometime, you'll see Job have to answer these type of questions. These type of, he went through a lot. Within a span of a couple days, he lost his family. He lost his possessions. He lost basically everything he had. But it says that Job was a man of God. God himself says, there is none like him on this earth, blameless, upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. Things were going really well for Job. And then he lost everything. And one of the biggest take-homes that I get from Job, and Michael actually mentioned this at CG a couple weeks ago, but the Job, like you see this huge distinction between God and man. You see God saying, I am God, and you are not. You see this huge distinction. And Job questions and questions and questions. And you see God's response saying, where were you when I formed the world? Where were you when I carved out the seas? There's a ton of statements like that. Where were you? And Job's response, finally, at the end, is, you are God, I repent. Because he learned in a very, very, very hard way that it's not his personal circumstances that allow him to worship. It's not his personal expectations or his situation, anything like that, that causes him to worship. But it's the very nature of God, who he is, creating the world out of nothing, who he is, that is what is worthy of worship. So again, why do you worship? Why do you worship? In this passage, in Matthew, Jesus is declaring and proving that he is the fulfillment of these prophecies, that he is the coming Messiah. That he specifically fulfills the prophecy in Zechariah of coming in on a donkey, of entering the city that way. But it also, he's accepting worship as the son of David. He's accepting this worship. No, none of the gospel accounts in any of them say that he makes any comments like, well, no, don't, don't worship me like that. What are you guys doing? That's, that's not right. No, he's, in, he's accepting this worship because he's the only one that's worthy of it. He knows that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the one that has been promised, that he is the one that is here. And it's not this lack of humility. It's not this, this arrogance. Yeah, you guys can worship me, but it's know that he is the only one that is worth it. And we're going to read this in a little bit, but all of heaven is going to worship him as the one who is worthy, as the only one who is worthy. There's another picture here, I think, that just is, is really, really beautiful. Um, in Exodus 12, God specifically commands how Passover is going to work. How, like, what is the actual Passover? This is when they're still in Egypt, the first Passover. And he tells 
to Israelites. He tells them every home is going to bring in a lamb. Every home is going to bring this lamb into their home on the 10th day of the month. And that lamb is going to live in their home for five days, and they're going to take care of it. Not, now we're not on this big sheep. We're talking about a small lamb that needs cared for, that needs taken care of. We're talking about where they lived in slavery in Egypt. We're not talking about their mansion where the lamb lives in the garage. We're talking about their small dwelling place where they would provide for this lamb, or they would take care of it for five full days. And then, on the, then the command was on the 14th of the month at midnight, at twilight, they were to kill the lamb. They were to spread the blood over the doorpost, and then the lamb was a part of the meal, the Passover meal that they partook of. Think about this whole scenario for just a moment. This lamb coming into their home, this lamb they bring in and, and care for this little lamb, children probably becoming attached to this little lamb that needed cared for, that needed provided for. For five days, it was more or less a part of the family. But then imagine the conversation on the 14th of the month, on that fifth day, the, fam the conversation with the family, the, the conversation with the little kids that would say, this lamb has to die. We have to kill this lamb. Just imagine that conversation. Imagine a father having to go to his children and say, that lamb that we've been taking care of, this little lamb that's been living with us, has to die. That it that only through this lamb dying are we able to be saved. That the little lamb was their salvation. Just imagine that conversation. And here's something that I did not know, that there's a lot of speculation about what was the actual year that Jesus died? What, what year was it on the calendar? Some people have said AD 30, some have said AD 33, I've heard AD 36. I've heard all these different things, like depending on all these calculations. And all three years that I mentioned, the Monday of Passover week was the 10th of the month, making Friday the 14th. They, this little lamb being pictured in the commandments of Passover, that Jesus would even kind of fulfill that small detail of being the lamb that was slain for our sin. We received into Jerusalem. This is another reason why I think it's happened on Monday. Like being received into Jerusalem on Monday, being received with praise and honor, only to be killed, only to be that sacrifice for sin five days later on the 14th. And if only these people understood that he was the lamb. If only these people understood that he was the final once and for all sacrifice. If they would have understood this, their, their worship would not have been the selfishly motivated worship that wanted some physical salvation. But their worship would have been out of understanding who Jesus truly was. That he was worthy of worship because he was the lamb that was slain. They would have understood that it wasn't this this liberation from physical oppression that they needed, 
but that it was salvation from their wicked, dirty, evil hearts that were so lusting after everything in the world other than their God. But Jesus was this ultimate sacrifice, that he was the lamb that provided salvation once and for all for his people. Like, this is why all of heaven worships and says, worthy is the lamb that was slain. It's actually in, in Revelation 5, 9 through 10. It's going to be up on the screens. This is heaven praising Jesus. It says, and they sang. That's not what I have. Worthy, okay, yeah. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Like this is a psalm being sung to Jesus. Because he's worthy of it. And he's the only one worthy of it. Like, our worship is not defined by our personal circumstance. Our, our worship of Jesus cannot be because of how well we think life is going. It can't be because of what we expect. Like Our expectations have to come from what, who is Jesus claimed to be? What is the whole Old Testament saying he's going to be? And who he is. So again, why do you worship? Because you think life is good? Because you think Jesus gives you the best chance for success? Because you think life is maybe going to be easier if you're obedient and follow Jesus? Like, the same crowd would go from, from rejoicing to wanting him dead because of failed expectations, because they were longing for the wrong thing. Their failed expectation would lead to that. And we as a church, we as this local body of believers, we can't just worship when things are good. We can't just worship when things are bad. We can't just worship because we think we should. Like we worship because Jesus is worthy of our worship, that he purchased us through his blood. It says that he was the only one worthy to open the scroll, that he is the only one worthy. And then we worship. We worship. I'm going to invite Tim to go ahead and come on up um, and start playing. But during this time, really just search your heart and ask that question. Why do you worship? Why do you worship? Is it because Jesus has seemingly done good things for you up to this point? Is it because of what you're hoping he's going to give you on this earth? Like, think about this passage and why these people were worshiping. They had these expectations that was just selfishly motivated. In contrast to that, I would challenge you, think of who Jesus is, who he, who he claimed to be, and what he has done. Think about your sin. Think about what your sin deserves. 
Think about the fact that Jesus was the Lamb of God that was slain because of your sin. Pray about that. I, I challenge you, really pray about that. Search your heart. Is there, are, are you selfishly motivated in any way in your worship? Is there any point about you? If you're not, if you're totally not understanding this, if you feel like those that are in this passage, I didn't get into it much, but are saying, who is this? If you're wondering, who is this? Like, come grab me. Come grab Tanner. Come grab someone and, and ask that question because the response that's given is completely untrue. Like, he's not just some prophet. He's not just some good teacher. This is the one who is our only hope for salvation. As I pr- before, after I pray, we're going to take communion like we usually do. And if you're a believer in Jesus, if you... If your faith is in his death and resurrection alone for salvation, I invite you to come um, take communion. But I'm going to encourage you to not rush up and do that. To don't, don't rush up and take it just as soon as you can. Because I really want us to search our hearts. Search why do we worship? Why do we worship? Because in communion we are really remembering Jesus' body being broken for us, the Jesus' blood being shed for us. And just pray about this. Pray, just ask God to purify your heart, to purify your worship, that it's not about us, it's totally about Him. That He is worthy of our worship. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know if there's, if you need to repent about something. I don't know if you need to go to someone else and forgive them for something. I don't know if you just need to have a real personal conversation with God about where your heart is and what you're hoping in. I just pray that you would take this time to really just ask God to reveal your heart and cause us to worship him and him alone. Let's pray. God, we praise you for how great you are. We praise you that you and you alone are worthy of our worship. And that our words can't even get close to to proclaiming just your glory and your majesty. Father, this whole time is for you. I pray that you would just take this for your own glory, that as we pray, as we sing, as we respond to you, I just pray that the glory and honor all be for you, all be towards you. And Father, just cause us to want you more than anything else. Father, you alone are worthy of worship. Father, show us where we need to let go of things. Show us where we need to repent of our own selfish desires. It's always been about you, God. 
from them for all of eternity past, all of eternity future. It's, it's all for you. Father, just stir in our hearts in just an amazing way and in a way that only you can. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he was the lamb that was slain, that it was through his blood that we might be saved. Father, that was all you're doing. That was all what you have done, nothing that we have done. And again, our words are inadequate. Our words can't possibly give you enough worship, enough praise. Father, thank you for the words that you have given us. Thank you that you've given us an avenue to respond. You've given us an avenue to worship you. And I just pray that that's the heart that you would give us, just that we would be so overwhelmed with who you are that we would worship that be why we worship, that we are so overwhelmed about who you are, about what you have done, and that for some crazy reason, you have loved us. Father, this whole time is for you. We praise you. We honor you. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.